This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. Hi, it's Saturday. This is the Saturday Show. And let me tell you about where I was last Saturday. I was at a music festival. It was called Sound on Sound. And that is the topic of a spiel, a spiel from one of the episodes of The Gist that aired this week. That's what we do on the Saturday Show. We play a best of the week. Was it the best? It was about, I'm going to say, a mediocre experience at a music festival. Some thought it was a crime against humanity. That's where we are. Again, topic of the spiel. But as I was there at this music festival, not only was I enjoying the music and cursing the darkness and waiting online and generally commiserating, but not in such a bad way with my fellow concert goers, I was experiencing the stage patter. Notice how I draw that out. The stage patter of those on stage. Mr. Lumineer, whatever, whatever his name would be, he said some things. Father John Misty dedicated one song to anyone who's ever had a pet that died. I think he specifically mentioned iguanas. Many of these artists had excellent stage banter, but how do you get there? Well, in 2015, a listener wrote in Dylan Condor, Condor with a K, of the band Condor with a K. Dylan's a good musician, great musician. He plays guitar in Broadway pits, but he has his own band. And he says the music part of it's good. The recording is good. The doing it live is good. It's the talking between the songs. He noticed I have, if not a gift for Gab, then a penchant for patter. And he hit me up and said, Mike, how do I become better? So I said, well, I don't know. Why don't we pair you with someone who is excellent on stage, someone who weaves a web of words effortlessly, although it's not effortlessly. So we got the singer-songwriter, Sharon Van Enten, into the studio. She sat down next to Dylan, and she became for him, in that moment, what we called the banter mentor or the bantor mentor. It should be the banter mentor, but you got to pick one and go with it. So now we will begin with a spiel about a music festival that was widely criticized, and then go to an old interview from June 2015 with the Bantor Mentor. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. In 
What you are hearing is singer-songwriter Sharon Van Etten. The song is called Just Like Blood. It's from the new EP, I Don't Want to Let You Down. And, sh- and sorry, Sharon Van Etten fans, that's the last we'll hear from her singing. But she's sitting next to me. Hello, Sharon. Hiya. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Let's hear a little of an up-and-coming artist, young kid, new on the block. His name's Dylan Condor. His band is Condor. Here's a song called Hostage. I know what you used to I can't refuse you You can't will this heart of mine to break And Condor's Dylan Condor is here too, next to me, next to Sharon. Hello, Dylan. Hey. And fans of the Condor, I apologize to you too. We're not going to hear the dude sing at all. In fact, we're not here for the singing portion of musicality. We're here for the talking portion. Dylan, you got in touch with me with a with an interesting request, as I remember. Tell tell the audience what well, you reached out in asking. I was listening to one of your spiels. I forget which one. Uh, and it occurred to me that I'd had a few shows in a row where I came off stage and thought the music went great and the banter went terribly. Bad banter. Bad banter. And uh, I noted that your elocution style is very snappy and quick. So I think I tweeted something at you like, you inspire me to improve my banter. Yes. And because I am an egoist, <laughs> immediately I said to myself, I'm going to I'm gonna Cyrano de Bergerac the kid. He'll, <laughs> he'll have a little thing in his ear, maybe Bluetooth technology, and I'll tell him what to say. But then I said... Who am I to do it? How much stage banter have I done? Forget me. Let's pull in what I call a bantor mentor, and that's you, Sharon. <laughs> I have heard that you're excellent at the bantor. I I have been working on it for a little while, but you can always have a miss. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but I think when you get when one gets into music, it would seem to me one of the last things that one thinks of. It's like, all right, I'm gonna write my songs, I'm gonna play my instrument, I'm gonna be good at that, I'm gonna even work on my live performance, and then it's like holy shit, what about the stuff I say in between or beforehand? It seems like the last thing you ever even think of. It can be pretty intense when you're tuning guitar and then it's just the silence on stage and the, the people looking at you to say something really clever. Yeah, the multitasking. <laughs> yeah. And there's a desire to be clever but also authentic. I don't want to sound like I wrote shtick. Right. You know? Yeah. But Sharon, if we charted your career, if we saw tapes of you early on, were you less good at stage banter than your fans tell me you are? I was terrible. Okay. You know, I mean, it started off like, you know, I had severe social anxiety moving to New York, and I started playing solo classical guitar in front of bar crowds. And it <laughs> is, that is like a sitcom waiting to happen anyway, you know. But right. I just, I had a haircut where I purposely, my hair was in my face, and I just got a little whiskey drunk and would play. And every now and then I would yell at people. But then, you know, I would say one or two things that, I felt like my music summed it up to see what people thought because I really at the time thought my goal was to make people cry. And so I would tell I'm going to make you cry. I want to make you cry. But that was all I would ever be able to say. (laughs) (laughs) But then it started, I played at a place called Zebulon a lot, RIP in Brooklyn, which was one of my favorite places. And they had a very intimate crowd and half of the room used to be with my friends and my families. And you could actually talk to people. And I felt like that's where I started learning how to engage people and Mm. have it feel more of a conversation where you're all on the same level as opposed to you're the performer and they're the audience. It's a room full of people that want to know you if they don't know you. That seems also, I would say, to fit in with your style, right? If you're uh, glam rocking out at an arena, you can't do that. But also you wouldn't want to do that. 
Right, because you have this image, yeah. but, you know, that's one thing I'm still learning how to be as an adult as myself, and letting people know who I am is that is all part of it to me. So, Dylan, how, I know you want to get better, but have you lit upon any strategies? Do you pre-write? Do you think about a, a, a patter about what a song means to you that you try to say every time? Uh, the last gig, I... I thought of a few things that would be easy to be off the cuff with while tuning. Okay, here's um, the thing. If you pre-think about things that are easy to be off the cuff with, that's not being off the cuff. Right. Yeah. To simulate off okay, the cuff Okay, right, right, yeah, yeah. But as far as talking about what the songs mean to me, Sharon, do you find that really like a tough nut to crack? I'm still figuring it out because some people love it and some people are like, let's talk more rock, which, you right. know, that gets really annoying. But sometimes people really want to know. And that, again, it's knowing your audience because I feel like sure. that changes every night. And it takes me probably until mid-set to really get their energy. And uh-huh. then you can see, well, do I, am I serious or do I start joking? And I think there's two different kinds of banter, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so will one show be like mostly jokey banter? How do you decide what the mood is? Well, what you're getting back from people, you know, sometimes they, you know, they're seated and, and, you know, sometimes it's an older audience. Sometimes it's kids. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's at a bar and people are drunk and rowdy. And how do you tame that? I Mm -hmm. mean, it really depends. Yeah. I think I have a leg up that uh, 60% of my crowds are still my Facebook friends. So okay. the crowd work thing would be pretty easy mm-hmm. as a way to connect with the audience since well, I'm already connected to a lot of them. Because you were just saying you had a show that you felt like it was your worst banter yet or something. Uh, How, tell me again. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. The, the time that I tweeted at Mike was after a particularly bad show and I actually... Uh, sent them some clips uh, masochistically. All right, let's play a clip. Let's diagnose it, banter mentor. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the better arrangements um, of one of my songs that we have, so naturally I was like, well, let's just do a different arrangement on this gig. <laughs> I'm, I'm a malcontent. <laughs> I don't, I don't, if something's good, I'm like, okay, how can I fuck with this now? in all areas of my life, oversharing. There there was a gem, there was a a germ in there that if you had been succinct and gotten out and been a little more self-confident, they'd have gone with you. Mm. But maybe you felt that the hole you were digging was a little bigger than it was. What do you think, Sharon? Yeah, I think that's a song that you're going to be able to learn how to talk about better Mm -hmm. as you go. I mean, I think what they were responding to was your self-deprecation, which also humanizes you, which I think is a good thing. Mm. And that's maybe why they ended up responding like that. It's quite possible I overdo the self-deprecation. It's kind of a default. (laughs) Even that just now was a self-deprecating remark, wasn't it? Well, it could be terse over length, you know? If you go in saying, I don't know, might this work? I'm going to say two sentences max about every song. Would that be at least for, you know, the first time where you try to, you know, up your banter game? Might that be a good exercise? Definitely. Yeah. Sure. If you get right to the point and it helps you formulate your own thoughts on it. Sure. And that could be something I preconceive because it would not take away from the authenticity. So let's talk about that song that you were leading up to. What song was it? 
Uh, it was a song of mine called Fool. Uh, we typically do it uh, very rock-ish. Yeah. Um, and this time I arranged it sort of as chamber music with some woodwinds and stuff. And I was, I think I was a little bit nervous about how that arrangement would come off. You can express your nervousness as excitement, you mm-hmm. know, but it can Go be ahead. like a nervous excitement and just say, this is new and I'm mm-hmm. trying it for you. We wanted to do something special today. Who knows? Yeah. What's going to happen? Or wait, tell me the name of the song again. Uh, Fool. Okay. So uh, I don't know if you guys know the song Fool. You said 60% of your fa- uh, audience, your Facebook friend. Yeah. Woo, we know Fool. All right. Work with <laughs> me here. This is going to be a risk, but we're all part of it together. Something like that. Right? That's the good. audience has stakes. You can say, you you think you may have heard this song before. This is the new version of it. Uh, you tell me after the song if you recognize it or not. Engage in that mm-hmm. way too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that is good. All right, let's hear another clip and let's uh, let's tear Condor a new one. <laughs> they only get worse from here, I think. Oh, good. That was nice. the high point. Oh, right. This is one of mine. Uh, Paul Simon's cool, but, you know, I wrote this. <laughs> Fuck Paul Simon. He isn't here, is he? That'd be both mortifying and, like, still kind of, like, awesome and worth it, worth that I just put my foot in my mouth, because he'd still, like, be here hearing me play, so. So I suppose some off-limits things like telling your musical heroes to fuck off mid-set would probably be, like, a good ground rule, right? I I don't know. Sharon, have you ever told anyone to fuck off? (laughs) Totally, yeah. yeah. And then I put my drink down. Uh-huh. And then I looked to my ba- my my uh, my guitar player Doug to save me a little bit. I'm like, "Hey, you guys, did you just say something? <laughs> did you call?" Uh, it's good to look to them sometimes. You know, it helps to not feel like you're the only one up there responsible for it. Too. Sure, I think maybe there's a desire to be irreverent in yeah. a way that can get a rise out of the crowd it's if I want the energy roll, to yeah. come up. But uh, again, I think. Insulting my musical heroes is not a good go-to, probably. Well, should he prescript? I I don't know. I have I have emergencies. If it's really quiet, I hear somebody's phone ring. I'll say, "If that's my mom, tell her I'm not here." Nice, nice. <laughs> or if good. somebody sneezes, I'll say, "Bless you," or "Need a tissue" or something. Uh-huh. You know, just like things that happen all the time, and sure. to acknowledge them if you're tuning or just something's weird. The interesting thing, Sharon, that you were saying is like you started out and in as in Dylan's situation, people who kind of know you, and so you were talking to them. I think that's a technique you could use. Mm-hmm. And were you talking to them? Joel, my producer here, was saying that he saw a show and you were literally having a conversation with your mom. I think my mom's here at one point. And <laughs> yes. then you would say things that people got on your side because your mom was there. <laughs> so like, you could talk about a family member or a friend, Dylan, who's mm-hmm. there. That could be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like, you know, when you're standing there, too, you usually notice some people up front, whether you know them or they have a, a personality to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have a few people that they're like, OK, they're going to be easy to talk to. Sure. You know, and that that could start, it could backfire, mm-hmm. but it could be the beginning of having some kind of connection. That strikes me as a good while tuning emergency move uh, to beat that awkward silence. Maybe we're missing the big elephant in the room. Maybe you need to tune your guitar less. Uh-huh. <laughs> How often does it come out of tune? You know, I, I get kind of anal retentive. I uh, for. Uh, most of my career, I've been a side man. I've yeah. been everybody else's guitarist. So I'm very used to being meticulous and, and the sort of triage of where to split my mental energy. It's, it's taken me a long time to let the guitar 
fall a little by the wayside so I can think about being a front man. How often will you two retune your guitar during a show? Well, it depends. We we still we try to get the set in an order where I don't have to put the capo on sure. so much because that makes it go out of tune way more. So mm-hmm. usually the first three songs, and this again, this is my bandmate Doug Keith is a great coach, but he's like, first three songs, let's just get them out of the way, get comfortable, get the crowd warmed up. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything that you you have to tune right away because mm-hmm. that you lose your momentum that way. Very right. first song, will you say something to precede it, or will you just break right into the song? I've been trying not to, and it's helped actually. Trying not to say yeah. anything. Yeah. So maybe about it, like like second or third song, depending on how it goes, then that's when you can say thanks for being here, blah blah blah. This is, and then you can introduce the next song and give yourself a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, or even like if you have to tune, then figure out a song where the rest of the va- the band starts without you. Oh sure. And then you can tune if you're just waiting for a minute, so you don't have to talk. Sure. Maybe there is also a story about a, a nugget about a detail of how or why you wrote the song. Like one, not the whole story, but one detail or nugget. You ever do that? I've done that. I've done, you know, what it was like in the studio, how it's changed live. Oh, that's or, cool. People will love that. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, something that again makes them feel special. Uh huh. For like for being there. You're and sharing. Why, yeah. why they would come to a show as opposed to listening to your record. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm not going to introduce this one because y'all probably know it. I'm going to just quickly say all the shit. Um, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash thebandcondor. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dylan Condor. Dylan spelled the Matt Dylan Way Condor with a K. Uh, I don't know. How, fucking, how great's this band, right? Thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to take a break from live shows and make an album, so I'll, you'll surely, I'll bother the shit out of you on Facebook and whatnot about it. Pre-order and help me fund it. Whatever. All right. Um, Cool. (laughs) Man, your stage banter is like a David Foster Wallace novel. I mean, it's got notations and it's got footnotes. There's the meta conversation going on. (laughs) I'm a big DFW fan. (laughs) Yeah. Oh God. So, uh, do you do that? You, you got to give a plug to social media. Oh yeah, you've got to a little bit. But I make I I make a joke about it, saying, "Let's see how many you take it. You know, take as many photos as you can during this song and see how many, how many posts we can get. Oh, just to get it out of their systems or right. So you're half serious. I'm half serious. Right. Yeah. That's that's clever. I mean, the the thing about the self promotion thing is, I I started this band. Because the the hired gun freelance guitar sideman thing has been, uh, you know, I've been lucky that that's been a source of of a career for me. So this has been just a labor of love to see if my songs work, to connect more to music in general. Obviously, I'd like to reach more people, but I'm not in much of a hurry. I don't know if that's a thing to say on the radio. <laughs> well, no, it's a hard, but it's a hard thing to do. Whatever you really want from it, you mm-hmm. know, just to ask people for. Right, I, I still money feel support. pretty bashful about that. Yeah, but you're you're creating something that people obviously are, appreciate, mm-hmm. and and you're creating it, and you want to make an album because you want to share it with them mm-hmm. in a different way mm-hmm. that they can hold on to. And that's something they'd be excited about. 
Mm-hmm. So it, if they don't know about it, how like if you can't don't talk about it, they won't know about it. Obviously, things I don't need to tell you. And yet, <laughs> um, you, you, it seems you do need to tell me this stuff. But just remember, these are people who are in a room. The commitment of you know taking time out of their day and going to a room and paying the money and watching for hours is so much less of a commitment than following someone on Facebook uh-huh, or even sure. listening online. So if any audience would be receptive to that, it's literally the audience there in front of you. I don't think I lack confidence in the material. Yeah. Um, it's uh, more confidence in whether I can get people on board with how much I like the material. Yeah. If that makes sense. You are worthy, though. Oh, well, thank you, Sharon. And everyone has their own audience, and it's he's right. It's right there in front of you, and it is weird to ask, but you'll get over that because people want to figure out how to help you. Oh, well, that's, that's very encouraging. Thank you for that. This has been really fun, guys. Dylan Condor, Sharon Van Etten, thank you so much. And thank you for mentoring Sharon. Thank you for wanting me to. <laughs> I hope you got something out of it. Absolutely. Though. Thanks for having me. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com and now the spiel I'm standing in a field of strangers under the night sky. We're all facing the same direction, awaiting the arrival of a dark-clad chanteuse who will appear to spin tales of enchantment and landslides, challenging us all to shatter our illusion of loves. It was Stevie Nicks. Black and gold woman Take your silver spoon there to see Stevie Nicks, and the mood was festive, makes sense, it was a festival. The crowd was much younger than Stevie, but not young, which is fine, I'm getting older too. This was the culmination of the first night of the Sound on Sound Music Festival, Bridgeport, Connecticut. That night, a dozen bands played, the Lumineers, Father John Misty, Band of Horses, and of course Stevie. This inaugural outdoor festival for Bridgeport sold not even as many tickets as this GIST episode will have listeners. But of course, to listen to the GIST, you don't have to stand outside and wait for every other listener to order their veggie hummus wrap. Now, maybe you have been to an outdoor festival. I try to avoid them, but there I was. Now, based on your own experience or what you imagine the strengths and flaws of an outdoor festival might be, let's do a little quiz. I'll ask you some questions. Please answer internally. Don't do so outside. At an outdoor festival... Are lines for food and drink very swift, or are they maybe somewhat long and tedious? What about portable toilets? Very clean, or kind of too quite disgusting? Parking, exceedingly easy in and out, or in fact, quite congested? 
I'm going to assume that the latter set of answers all apply. And guess what? They did at the Sound on Sound Festival. Not to a horrific or unfathomable degree, but they all fell somewhere in the range of disappointing. I know this because I spoke to dozens of people there. You have a lot of time to talk to fellow concert goers waiting on lines for, I timed it, 45 minutes to get a beer. And during the wait, the tenor of the conversation among my fellow concert goers was, you know, waiting in line sucks. These lines are long. Yeah, but the roots are playing. Or I heard they ran out of fried dough. Yeah, but fried dough isn't good for you. I think Brandy Carlisle may be. 29 to 39,000 people seem to have a pretty good time despite inconveniences. A thousand people did not, and all of them went from waiting in line to grousing online to compare this rootsy Americana light rock music festival to being herded on a death march into a prisoner of war camp. At Jill Menges tweets, hashtag sound on sound overcrowding is dangerous. My husband overheated, turned white and was fainting. Nowhere to go. Luckily, the people behind us made a wall with their bodies and gave us room to open a chair so we could get him to a seat. Emergency services wouldn't have made it to us. So I will translate what happened. A guy got lightheaded, but then was fine. At Thomas Rain tweets, hashtag sound on sound, hashtag fail. This festival is trash. Lines are ridiculous. Acoustics are horrible. Not nearly enough space. FYI, I was at Woodstock 99 and still think this is bad. At Jess Stone VT writes, I'm posting this so I could join the inevitable class action lawsuit. That was the sentiment. Firefest 2.0. Let's wait for the Netflix documentary. Shame, shame, shame. They all seem to be bonding over how much they hated sound on sound. I feel kind of bad about mellowing their harsh, but I got to note that there was a really clever plan in place and it worked well. They had two stages there. So one could engage in setup for the next act as an act was playing. And that meant there was almost no downtime in between, just a lot of music, which prompted one social media poster to complain. They had zero downtime in between sets. One band would finish on one stage and the next would immediately start on the other stage. So if you had to go to the bathroom or get food and drink, you were missing music. They were literally scheduled five minutes apart. Yeah, I know, that was good. This poster talked about her panic from the crowds, making it unenjoyable and added of the second day of offerings, and I wasn't there, oh, I almost forgot. Performers from day one took their merch back. People went to buy camp shirts, that's a band, camp with two A's, today, and were told the band took their merch back. If you didn't get a shirt on day one, you are shit out of luck for day two. Yeah, added to the class action, I can't buy a concert t-shirt for 45 bucks in 2022. I can't fathom another way to buy merchandise. The online fetching garnered local TV coverage. One woman who was quoted lodged this complaint. As soon as it got dark out, we couldn't see anything. I can confirm. The attendee was quoted on a local Connecticut TV station. I noticed the people that local stations quoted with complaints were all recorded over Zoom. The stations had found folks who were registering their dissatisfaction on social media, reached out and asked them of their experience, which is fine. No, no critique there. Well, the people were critiquing, not my critique of the stations. But whenever these same stations and these same reports showed any footage of the actual event that the news crews who were there in person recorded, this was always the sentiment. 
Um, the acts that I saw today were pretty much amazing. Uh, the way that they organized it today was also amazing. I know that there were a lot of concerns from Saturday that they addressed. I'm pretty impressed by what they've done here. You know, for this being the first year, I feel like it's impressive and the lineup is is incredible. Fans were killing it. You guys did a great job. I'm not cherry picking or turd plurking. The most outrageous complaints. Things apparently did improve on Sunday, but on Saturday, the comments were running 99 to 1 in scorched condemnation of what in actuality was an overall pleasant but flawed music festival. But that shouldn't surprise us because most of life, most of actual life as lived is somewhere in between pretty good and kind of flawed. That's the actual ceiling and floor for the overwhelming majority of what we do and experience. It's all bracketed by pretty good or kind of flawed. But the expression of this experience, especially online, is rapturous or calamitous. A study done by Northwestern, and they've been studying this for years, where they look at Yelp reviews. In 2022, 51% of Yelp reviews, five stars. 18% one star. But if you go to the middle, you know, where most things actually lay, 8% of experiences of any kind get three stars. 6% get two stars. And yes, we all know about the polarizing nature of social media. But it takes an experience like this to emphasize just how warped our impressions are. At the festival, if one were to start railing about how horrible the festival was in the middle of other people at the festival, he or she, the railer, would be greeted with, you know, kind of uncomfortable nods and avoidance. All right, yeah, you know, we all see the lines long. That is, in fact, how I learned that your third grade class did a choral arrangement of landslide. We had a lot of time to talk. But yeah, uh, you know, don't sign me up for the lawsuit. Twitter is not just disproportionately outraged. It's not just tending or trending toward the extreme. It's not just overwhelmingly inflammatory. It's almost entirely hair on fire. What the social media audience is fed bears so little resemblance to actual events as to act very much like propaganda. Think about actual propaganda outlets, whatever that phrase means to you. It could be the average article on The Federalist or the average segment taken up by the Young Turks or a Brett Bear Fox segment on Fox News. All are actually, on average, much closer to the truth than the so-called real experiences as supplied by actual citizens under the norms and algorithms of Twitter. They say that thunder only happens when it's raining, but it is a non-stop tempest out there. It's a natural disaster. It's a crime against humanity. It's a calamity to which attention must be paid. Give me the hashtags. Back up the hashtag truck. Or as we call all of this cataclysm in the actual world, it's kind of flawed, but pretty good. And that's it for The Saturday Show. Thanks to Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the assistant and senior producer, respectively. And I will talk to you on Monday.